in song, we bless you in prayer now for who you are. And we recognize that we're barely scratching the surface in terms of understanding your nature, understanding your holiness, your love, Lord, your grace, the incredibly perfect combination of everything good that you are. And we bless you tonight, Lord, for who you are, your love for us, your desire to bring us into a relationship with you that you have promised that what you've begun in our lives you're going to bring to completion. We thank you for that confidence. We pray that you would bless our time in your word tonight, that you would use it to increase our love for you, our awe of you, continue to conform us into the image of Christ. We've been fashioned by all kinds of things this week, Lord, very strong conforming environment that we're in, as you're well aware. And now we want all of that broken off, Lord, that's trying to harden upon us. And we ask, Lord, for that work of your Holy Spirit to fashion us into the image of our Savior. Thank you for how far you've brought us. We ask that you use tonight to continue that glorious process of sanctification. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Jeremiah chapter 20. In our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. Men, if you don't have a Bible tonight, you'll need one. And there'll be men coming up the aisles right now uh, with Bibles. And if you just flag them and you don't have one, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. A couple of announcements in case uh, some of you aren't able to make the morning services. Just a reminder that a week from uh, tomorrow, uh, Monday the 8th, we're going to have our next water baptism. So if you've never been water baptized as a Christian, that is a commandment. And here's an opportunity for you to uh, do that. I'll explain everything that it represents and all you need to do is come that night. And there's a flyer out in the fellowship hall with all of the information that looks like this. Gentlemen, also a reminder to you that the uh, Northern Central California Men's One Day Conference is coming up this fr uh, Saturday at uh, Warehouse Ministries in Sacramento. Always a great day. A flyer with that information is also available out in the fellowship hall uh, to pick up and uh, to attend. Jeremiah chapter 20. I was thinking as we were... Uh, worshiping the Lord tonight, and uh, also um, I was worshiping Him. I wasn't involved in sermon prep, but I, I couldn't help but uh, think about, you know, as we're being led in worship, and, you know, it's just amazingly uh, amazing how holy God is, how good He is, how majestic He is. I mean, words fail related to all of that, but somehow uh, the children of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, they lost sight of that. The northern kingdom of Israel had uh, done that previously. No one ever uh, abandons God and the worship of the God of the Bible to then begin to worship the idols or the things that the world uh, worships unless there has to be a first step in there somewhere where I lose my awe and my appreciation uh, for the fact that God loves me, that God has made a way for me to know Him, to have this relationship 
with him. And there is, uh, you know, we speak every so often of the curse of familiarity, where the things that even in our first two months as a Christian, we think we're far more mature uh, now after years and for some of us decades and so forth, and, uh, but uh, so easy to be in awe of Him. The worship just flows out of our lives. He is everything. The surrender is complete. And then, uh, you know, years later, we know more than we've ever known about Him, have more experience than we've uh, ever had, and yet we've lost that awe and the curse of the familiarity. There is a, w- uh, a way, uh, uh, certainly there's a, a sense in which I wish every time I read the Bible, it was to read it for the very first time and to be impacted with that kind of freshness each time. The Holy Spirit provides that to us, but uh, how it's just great to be led in the worship of the Lord and, uh, to st- and for that to be an expression of our heart to God. God, we worship. We are the creation. You are the creator. You are the greater. Uh, we bless you tonight. It's an important mark of a Christian's life. Be careful, and I exhort myself, if this part of the worship service, whether in this church or any church, uh, that singing to the Lord and offering Him praise and, and thanksgiving and worship, if that becomes something that I can just sit through, not involve myself in, it's a first step. It's a sign that something isn't good. No matter what I feel like related to worship, He is always worthy of that worship. And that's what we've come to do is to bless Him. And so make sure that, uh, you know, we want to make sure that we don't lose that. They lost that is probably an initial step in ending up in the apostasy that they ended up uh, in. Now we remember as we come to chapter 20 and chapter 19, uh, Jeremiah has taken the leaders and elders, religious leaders, so forth, of the southern kingdom of Judah out to the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he took a flask out with him, a clay flask, and then spoke to them uh, at the scene of their greatest atrocities and sin. It was idolatry central, central in Jerusalem, and he pronounced the fact that uh, judgment was going to come upon them, broke the flask, and uh, as an indication, it was an object lesson of the fact that Judah was also going to be broken by uh, Babylon. He then, you remember, went into Jerusalem, came to the temple, and he preached that same message at the site of the temple to everyone that was there. Here is the reaction uh, to that sermon, chapter 20, verse 1. Now, Pasher, the son of Immer, uh, Immer being the priest who was also uh, 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 the priest who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord. He heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things of a coming judgment. Uh, Pasher is not a good guy. Uh, later on, when we get to chapter 38, toward the end of the book, he and a gentleman by the name of Gedaliah. Uh, we find out that late in Jeremiah's ministry, they were doing everything they could do ultimately to put Jeremiah to death in order to silence his voice. But he's some kind of an official in the area of the temple. Here is Jeremiah preaching this, and so he exercises his authority now uh, to put uh, Jeremiah's uh, preaching to a stop. And so Pasher struck Jeremiah uh, the prophet. We don't know whether he smote him, you know, across the face. Most likely, he had uh, Jeremiah arrested and gave him 39 stripes uh, for 
what it is that he had done. And then he put him in the stocks that were at the high gate of Benjamin, uh, which is by the house of the Lord. So he puts him in these stocks. Something interesting, you know, when we think about stocks, we think about early American history maybe, where people have, they're in those stocks and they've got their head through and then their arms through and their feet through. Uh, what they did in these days, in the very, uh, in the original language, the word stocks here is it, it's used, it carries the idea of twisted. And they would put people in stocks, but to be put into them would be to contort the body, to twist the body, uh, so that ultimately you could never get com- comfortable, and worse than that, in trying to manage the position, your muscles would begin to cramp. You ever had a cramp? that you can't stretch out and you can't deal with. And, that, and so it was a torture. That's exactly what they were doing. They put Jeremiah in the stocks at one of the main entrances to the temple. And the idea is to humiliate him in front of the population of Judah. This guy's a fool. Look at, don't listen to him. He's a laughing stock. And people would come and go from the temple then and see him kind of caged like an animal. And it was, a, it was a means by which of kind of diminishing him as a person and thus his message uh, before the population. And so this was uh, what they did. And they left him in the stocks all night. Uh, and it happened the next day that Pasher then brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. And if they thought that, if he thought that this uh, taught Jeremiah a lesson and that Jeremiah was going to be quiet now uh, related to speaking for the Lord, well, he misjudged Jeremiah entirely, and more importantly, he misjudged the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah then said to him, the Lord has not called your name Pasher, but Magor Mishabib. And, and uh, of course, everybody's naming their children Magor Mishabib these days, so it really doesn't need any explanation. Well, the, the, it literally, it, it translates terror all around. And Jeremiah says to this man, uh, your new name is terror all around. In other words, the idea is it isn't going to be long before you are surrounded by uh, fear. Uh, you're a, a big shot. You've got your position of authority at the temple. Everyone holds you in high esteem. It's easy to be like a tough guy uh, at the temple. But when the Babylonians come in and they wipe out this city and they take you captive and everybody you know, uh, you're not going to be Mr. Tough Guy on that scene. You're going to be afraid along with everybody else in your family and everybody else in the city uh, as well. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and your eyes shall see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with the sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the wealth of this city, so not only will you be defeated, you'll be completely plundered of your wealth. I will deliver all the wealth of this city, all of its produce, all its precious things, all the treasures of the kings of Judah. I will give into the hand of their enemies who will plunder them, seize them, and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity 
You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die and be buried there, you and all your friends to whom you have uh, prophesied. And so uh, Jeremiah lets, them, uh, lets him know, uh, you can incarcerate me, you can torture me, you can do what you want, but until you repent, you're the one that's the false prophet to Judah, and uh, you're going to be exposed as a false prophet before this is all said and done. I'm not going to be the one who is ultimately going to be viewed as the enemy of Judah and the enemy of God's people. When history gets, gets written, you're going to be on the wrong side of this because you're on the wrong side of God's commandments and on the wrong side uh, of His, uh, his uh, prophecies. Jeremiah in verse, verse seven, 7 is, this is just such a powerful scene. Many of you are going to recognize it, probably most of us, from our own lives in one degree or another. But Jeremiah, here he is. It's, it's easy to look at, um, you know, him as a servant, and you see him in, his public realm, in the public realm. You see him even after he's been beaten, after he's been in stocks, all night, he comes forth, and he's very, very bold to deliver the message. And sometimes we can begin to think that these uh, men and women in the Old Testament are like uh, Superman and superwomen. You know, I mean, it's just like they never had any kind of a struggle at all. It was just they stepped into the phone booth or uh, asked for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, and out they came. It was all effortless. And it's passages like this that give us kind of a glimpse at uh, what happens so often, and I would say probably in every servant of the Lord who is called to some kind of a public ministry to speak for God, there's the public life, and then there's the private life. And the private life is sometimes a little bit more of a struggle uh, than, than the public life. I remember uh, watching a, a, a pastor teach one time, and he was talking about himself to the congregation, and he said, uh, he, he talked about the fact of how, uh, you know, he says, I come here and I encourage you uh, in, in the Lord. Uh, I, I, uh, and as I teach the Word of God, I am parting, imparting courage that God has in my life to you. But he says, when I leave this place and I go home, I'm depleted of courage. And now it's an entirely different scene as I recover now in the privacy of just my relationship between the Lord and I. Well, you could probably tear that apart in, in some different ways, but however you want to phrase it, that is, that is, there is a, uh, a public life and then there is a private life for every servant uh, of the Lord. And uh, it isn't inconsistent to be bold and strong in public and then to, you know, really go through some things in private, you know, that you uh, have to, to uh, take uh, to the Lord. And so here we get a look at some of the inner turmoil he went through privately in his heart. And it's what he cries out to the Lord here. It's really a complaint and a very, very amazing prayer, very honest as he kind of ex exposes how uh, the going back and forth and being washed back and forth in terms of uh, emotionally, in terms of mentally, even spiritually, and all as he's operating in the, in the considerable demands of being obedient to God's call uh, upon uh, his life. And the great thing that we see here, one of the great things, is to 
see that Jeremiah, where he goes with these things that are going on in his heart, and he takes all of this emotion, all of this discouragement, uh, all of the trials and persecution, and he takes them to the Lord in prayer. Um, there, the Lord is the safe person, and you'll see as we get into it in a moment, I mean, you get in how raw all of this is. But we can take anything to the Lord in prayer and pour our heart out to the Lord, and the Lord will never gasp. He'll never say, oh, don't tell me that. I can't know that about you. I mean, he knows everything. So he's like the lone safe person in life. Sure, we have friends, we have relationships, we have fellow servants uh, of the Lord that we can talk to to a point and they can understand. But, you know, nobody walks exactly in our shoes. But the Lord understands everything. And Jeremiah uh, brings all of this safely to the Lord. I like David. Here's another great leader and spiritual leader in the Old Testament. And in one of his Psalms, he uh, gives the exhortation, pour out your heart to the Lord. And in the original language, that word pour means to spill. And I don't know about you when you were growing up, but when my twin brother and I were growing up, when we spilled a glass of milk at dinner time, we spilled a glass of milk. We knew how to do it. Uh, we didn't know how to catch it, and half the milk came out. All of the milk came out all across the table, and then it was trouble. But enough about my problems uh, related to that. But the idea is Jer uh, David encourages us that we can pour everything that we're feeling out to the Lord and he is uh, the safest one uh, in order to, uh, to do that. And so he said, as he begins here, he said, Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. And so he essentially says to the Lord, Lord, you're the one who got me into this mess by calling me to be a, 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 a prophet here. And I was just going on about my own business. I would have been happy just to be like a tailor or a leathersmith or someone in the city and all. You're the one that called me into this thing, and uh, you gave me no power to refuse you in, in any of this. And the word induced there in the Hebrew, it means to lure, to entice, to, to then overpower and prevail. So essentially, he's saying to God, you tricked me into this. You called me to become a prophet before I understood what it would be to be a prophet and the spiritual environment that you were calling me to be a prophet in, that this would go on for 40 years and nobody would listen to me for the full 40 years. I remember hearing uh, Pastor Chuck Smith say uh, many years ago, I heard him say it on a Bible teaching tape, and uh, he said it humorously but truthfully that sometimes God calls us uh, into ministry before we have the good sense to say no. Uh, and if we knew what was going to uh, happen to us in a, emotionally or mentally or physically on that road, uh, we would have uh, said uh, no to it. I, I don't doubt that he keeps in his wisdom uh, the, the price that's going to be paid on that path to himself. If he had showed me everything at the beginning, I would be, as I've said before, finishing my 43rd year as a cable splicer at Pacific Bell and uh, not doing this. But the upside is 
the ministry, when God calls us to do whatever He calls us uh, to do, the reward of that, one of the greatest rewards of that is not what will, the reward that will happen eternally for us, but one of the great rewards of Christian service is who we become uh, because of what we face in whatever God calls us to do and the things that we can't escape, the, the character that we develop. and. Uh, the uh, depth of, uh, of love and, and Christ-likeness that we would never otherwise develop if we could just escape from hardship every time uh, we had a chance to, uh, to do that. And so uh, when he was commissioned by the Lord, the Lord had told him, listen, it's not going to be easy, but I'm going to take care of you. But Jeremiah could have never had any idea that it was going to be as hard as uh, what he was facing. He talks, first of all, about in his complaint is the fact that he's being mocked every day. I, I don't know in just the privacy of your heart, when's the last time you were mocked? Someone just in your face mocked you for whatever kind of reason. Uh, once we become adults, people tend not to do that uh, kind of thing. I remember it was just a few weeks ago, somebody did something to me, and it was like, wow, I haven't uh, felt that since eighth grade. You know, I mean, people just don't usually say things or do things like that, and uh, I wasn't at fault. The person was a creep, and uh, that's just, you know, it, it's not always that way, but in that situation, uh, it was. But think about not being mocked, you know, once in a while and then having some time to recover from it, take it to the Lord, leave it with Him, and move on. But this is your portion now for 40 years, and everybody is mocking Him. Everyone is uh, making uh, fun of Him and His calling, and so, uh, and so everyone, he says, uh, mocks me. So it wasn't one or two. It was the whole uh, southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. For when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted, violence and plunder. He was warning, you need to repent. Violence is coming. Plunder is coming. You're going to be conquered. And I said these things because of the word of the Lord, uh, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach and uh, a derision daily. And so he said, I'm telling people violence is coming. I'm telling them plunder is coming. And then they're making fun of me. Oh, here comes Mr. Plunder. Here comes Mr. Violence. And, you know, and, and everybody considered him to be a false prophet. Now, remember, Jeremiah is prophesying at a time in the history of God's people where most often when a prophet prophesied, people expected that prophecy to come to pass immediately. And if it didn't come to pass uh, fairly immediately, they branded them a false prophet. We have the advantage of being New Testament uh, Christians and saints of looking back and we see how much of the Old Testament, even the New Testament, are prophecies concerning the end of the age, that there can be uh, decades, there can be hundreds and even thousands of years between a prophecy given by God and then the fulfillment of it. So we look at people and we judge prophets in a kind of a different way as a result of that. But Jeremiah because they weren't conquered immediately, the Babylonians didn't wipe them out uh, immediately. They were making fun of him. Here's the guy, you know, the, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Hey, Jeremiah, you know, this is a grown man. This isn't a child. This is a grown man that they're doing this to, and that's tough. 
you, you know, the old nursery rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Biggest lie ever put to rhyme. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether we're a child or whether we're adult. And so this is the kind of emotional, mental abuse that was going on in his life. And so he then determines, verse 9, that he's going to quit his calling. That's it. Uh, Then I said, he said to himself, I will not make mention of him, that is God, nor will I speak any more in his name. God, if you can't take care of me better than this, and I'm not going to get better treatment than this, then that's it. I'm not going to speak for you anymore. I quit. That's it. I got however many years I've got invested here. That's terrific, but I'm done now. You ever tried to quit uh, what God has called you to do? He he doesn't take… it's like his hands become kind of whatever. They, he just doesn't take resignation letters. He just simply doesn't. Uh, if he did, probably most pastors would, uh, you know, quit on any given Monday in, in the world. But here he is. He tries to uh, quit. That's it. I'm not going to talk about him anymore. I'm not going to speak for him anymore. I, I'm done. Uh, this is, uh, you know, kind of uh, over for me. And I, and, and I think most of us have tried to quit. I certainly have many, many times. And then the Lord's response was, uh, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. That is known as God refusing our resignation letter. Uh, God just kept the anointing upon his life, kept giving him the prophecy, and as, as difficult as it was, it was to uh, face the persecution he was going through, um, it was much harder to try and hold these things back when God was putting this so strongly uh, upon him. And so, uh, you know, he uses the imagery of a burning fire. A burning fire has to have a vent or it's going to blow up what it's inside of. And so, uh, ultimately, Jeremiah uh, feels that, you know, he just can't uh, he, he can't refuse what God is doing. And so here he comes and he begins to prophesy once again. For I heard many mocking, fear on every side. And again, ah, here comes the guy that told Pasher, you know, terror all around or fear on every side. Hey, Jeremiah, fear on every side. You know, Pasher's still working at the temple and you're, you know, and you've called him fear on every side. He seems to be doing just fine, making fun of it. They said, report and we will report it report it. Give us another prophecy, and we'll go out and take it for you, all in a mocking kind of way. All of my acquaintances, he doesn't call them friends. He doesn't have any friends. But even his acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, perhaps he can be induced, and then we can prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. Well, if this are your, like your best friends, considering what everybody else is, is thinking about you, they were thinking, hopefully he will give a false prophecy, we can discredit him as a prophet, and then uh, go on our our business. And that's what they were uh, looking for related to to his life. So mocking him for crying, wolf, wolf, and uh, and the prophecy's not coming to pass. But then he, uh, he responds here to all of this, and we're given a glimpse at kind of the inner struggles of Jeremiah and kind of the mood swings that he went through in 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 private in his ministry. It's fascinating to me that the Lord would include it in the Scriptures. 
And I think the reason that uh, this intimate of an event in Jeremiah's life is recorded for us, I don't know that any of us would want a prayer like this between us and the Lord to be made a part of Scripture, but God does it because it, this kind of what Jeremiah experiences here is so prevalent in all of our lives as we serve the Lord and things get hard when we do. But the Lord, he said, Jeremiah said, but the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one, and therefore my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. But, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for I have pleaded my cause before you." So he stands before the Lord, and he is a man of faith. He is unshakable as he declares these things to the Lord. Then he moves into praise, verse 13. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. God is good, and God is good all of the time. And he has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of evildoers. So he's this uh, example of faith and praise. And then he goes off of a cliff in verse 14. Cursed is the day in which I was born. You ever had that happen in your life? Within an hour, within three minutes, where the difficulty of our life, whatever it might be that's going on, in one minute it's just God and you, and I claim this promise and this, and I praise you for all of this and everything, and then two minutes or an hour later, I wish I'd never been born. And I mean, we just go right off of the cliff. And when you read something like this, it looks like Jeremiah is like a little crazy or a little unstable. Not crazy, but unstable on things. But it gets included because um, if you've never been in that kind of a trial or that deep of a trial before, you might just keep this in your hip pocket and to know that when it happens to you, uh, you're normal. And this kind of thing does happen in our lives. One minute we're this, the next minute there's the praise, and then the next minute we can be down as low as a person can go, and then God is faithful to then bring us up out of that. Now look at how low he gets. Cursed be the day that I was born. I'd wish I'd never been born. Now, this isn't a 10-year-old saying this uh, to their parents because they didn't get an extra piece of pie. Uh, this is a full-grown man, very strong guy, and he's reached a place now emotionally where he looks and says, whatever I've experienced in life, whatever's been my portion in life, whatever joys, whatever any of that is, I, I would forfeit all of it to have never been born, uh, to experience the difficulty that I find myself in right now. Now, the interesting thing about Jeremiah is, of course, he's a Jew. And according to the law of Moses, you could not curse your father and your mother. Uh, that was a cause for stoning under the law of Moses. So he doesn't curse them. Uh, he curses the day uh, that he was born. Let not, let not the day be blessed in which 
my mother bore me, uh, that there was never a celebration related to my birth. Let the man be cursed who brought the news uh, to my father, saying, uh, a male child has been born to you, making him very glad. He says, I wish my father had never received that message uh, from that man, and I I wish that man was cursed to deliver that message. And it was very good news in the ancient world for a father to receive the news of the birth of a son because it was another worker and, and, uh, and it was someone who would take care of you in your old age. So the very best news would be to have a, a son born to you. And let that man be like the cities which God overthrew and did not relent. And so here he is, he's saying, I wish that that man had been judged like Sodom and Gomorrah who took the message. Now, he doesn't really believe this. I mean, it's poetic language. He doesn't wish the guy was actually dead, but it, it, it speaks about the turmoil that's in his heart. Let him hear uh, the cry in the morning and the shouting uh, at at noon, because he did not kill me uh, from the womb. He wishes that he had been stillborn, that my mother might have been my grave and her womb always enlarged with me. And why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow that my day should be consumed with shame? Now, that's a trial. That's a trial. I had one of my best friends in high school he had a saying, when things would get hard, as hard as things could get for you when you're in high school, and, and, and he was in a pretty good situation, but he would just, something would go wrong, and he'd go, man, life is hard, and then you die. It's a perky little saying, isn't it, if a little on a magnet on your… Um, but that's what, he, that's what he's feeling like. And, and here he looks at it and says, man, if I'd have known that being alive is not worth what I'm in the middle of. Now, this is, this is quite a place for a guy to be in. The interesting thing and the tremendous encouragement to each of us in this room tonight is that Jeremiah survives. How often this episode occurred in his life, we don't know, but at least once. But he survives this. And God meets with him in the highs and then in the lowest of the lows and sustains Jeremiah through it so that he can continue his ministry. We are not in our service to the Lord or our walk with the Lord alone. God is with us, and he will take us even through the lowest kind of valleys that we can uh, find ourselves in. And that's why I think that it's included here uh, within the Scriptures, so that when we hit those kind of places in our own life and we feel so alone, we feel like nobody else has ever gone through this, you'd be surprised. I talk with a lot of people who serve the Lord, and you'd be surprised at at least how many pastors… Uh, on a weekly basis, want to get out of what uh, they're in the middle of because of how stretching it can sometimes uh, be. And so here is this, this despair. And again, it isn't the, the despair of unbelief. He believes in God. He believes in the prophecies that he's preaching. He knows they're going to come to pass. It's just life has become so hard for him uh, in his calling uh, as 
a, a, a prophet. This is the final time. There's a, several times in the book of Jeremiah where Jeremiah reaches this kind of point. This is the final time, at least as it's recorded in the chronology here of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah goes to this place. It appears that when he hits this kind of rock-bottom place and whatever happens between him and God, and he tries to quit, and, he, and all of these things that happen, that somehow something happens between him and God that is like uh, some purification within his life, uh, some work of God's grace within his life, that from this point forward, he just moves forward. He will never complain again. He will never ask to die again. He will never desire to quit again. And it's interesting how sometimes we get to these places in our ministry, we don't think that we're going to survive them, the difficulty of it. And I'm talking about being a mom, being a parent. And, and there can be these things that God calls us to do, and we think there's no way, you know, we're going to survive this. There's no way that we're going to make this. And then somehow God gives us a gear that we never had before, and He gives it to us. And then we move forward, and we're an entirely different person in terms of His calling, how we view it, and our commitment to it. And it's a hard thing to see Jeremiah go through this, hard to see people go through it as well. But something very powerful happens when it does occur, and indeed really something that, you know, very, very uh, important. Now, as we get into chapter uh, 21 here, we're getting into uh, kind of a record of the final years of Judah just before they go into captivity. And you say, well, then why doesn't the book end in chapter 22? And why does it go on as far as it does? The book of Jeremiah is not uh, written in, for us in a chronological order. There are portions of the Bible that are strictly chronological. Uh, this book, the Holy Spirit, has put things together on the basis of themes, on the basis of events. Jeremiah is very careful in the introduction of most of these chapters to give us names of kings, give us dates and so forth. So it's not like he's not trying to hide where these events fit in the chronology, but God is uh, is putting them in their order to teach us a lesson. In other words, one of the reasons might be that chapter 21 is following chapter 20 is Jeremiah, after you leave chapter 20, you think, is he even going to survive? Is he going to make it to the end of his ministry? And so God puts chapter 21 in place that has to do with the end of his ministry, and we look at it and go, wow, he makes it all the way to the end. God's amazing. And, uh, and he was a beautiful servant of the Lord. And so uh, he writes, the word which came uh, to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher, this is a different Pasher than the previous chapter, the son of uh, Melchiah and Zephaniah, the son of uh, Masahesiah, the priest. And so King Zedekiah, he was the final king of Judah when uh, Jerusalem and Judah was conquered uh, by the Babylonians. And so here they are now at the end. All hope is lost. They're about to be conquered. And King Zedekiah 
sends to uh, Joshua, uh, to uh, Jeremiah here, and says, is there, uh, you know, a word from the Lord related to the situation uh, that we're in the middle of? Please inquire of the Lord for us, because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works, that the king may go away from us. So everything's completely desperate now, because here's King Zedekiah. He abandons all of his false prophets, and now in the hour of need, he turns to Jeremiah for a word from the Lord. It is interesting how life plays out, and so often with our, with our families or with friendships within our life, relatives and so forth, where people just look and say, oh, no, he's a, he's a Christian, he's great. I don't want to hear anything about that. You know, I like to listen to these people and over here, and I believe this and all of that. And then all of a sudden something happens in their life, and they begin to crash and burn, and then you get the phone call at 11 o'clock at night. Can we talk? Sometimes you just have, we just have to hold our own, continue to serve the Lord, to speak for the Lord, continue to walk with the Lord while they, life catches up to them. But how often it is that once that happens then, if we're still in our place, then they come and say, okay, what does God say about this? And that's what's happening uh, with Zedekiah here. What he wants to have happen is that God's going to do some kind of a miracle for them. You remember earlier as we were going through the Scriptures in the northern uh, kingdom of Israel, when, uh, it, or in, in Israel when Hezekiah was the king over Israel, that the Assyrian army came against Israel, and God in one night, just one single angel, went out and slew supernaturally, a miracle of God, 185,000 Assyrian troops wiped out, and the siege and the attack by the Assyrians uh, was broken off. So he probably has his, in his mind a little bit about history, and would you inquire of the Lord to see if he's going to do something, you know, like that uh, for us now? Uh, he was probably not prepared here for uh, Jeremiah's answer. Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord uh, God of Israel. You want a word from God? Here's the word from God. It hasn't changed. Behold, and notice those next two words, I will. Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands. In other words, you think, you, you look at your situation and it looks bad to you because you're weighing your military, your resources, uh, your strategic position in the light of the Babylonian army, and that's got you frightened. But your situation is way worse than that because you're not just fighting the Babylonian army. You are up against me. I'm going to fight against you when they fight against you, and I'm going to defeat you. No one can win a battle against God. And as we've mentioned several times, when God is your problem, only God is your solution, and they're not willing to accept that. So thus says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls. I will assemble them in the midst of this city. 
I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. I will strike the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence or disease. And afterwards, said the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, his servants and the people and such as are left in this city from the pestilence and the sword, and the famine, then into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their life, and he will strike them with the edge of the sword, and he will not spare them, nor have pity uh, on them. And so that's the message that uh, Jeremiah gives to them, king or no king, Jeremiah is no respecter of persons. He reinforces the message that was all along. If you don't repent, then this is exactly uh, what it is that is uh, going to, to happen. God says, not only will I not deliver you, I'm going to take the side uh, of, of your enemies. And so, uh, and exactly what Jeremiah describes here, what happened to Zedekiah and Judah, is exactly what happened when Nebuchadnezzar conquered the city. Now, you shall say, uh, the Lord uh, instructs uh, Jeremiah now to take essentially that same message that he spoke to the king and now to speak it uh, to the population of Judah itself. So Jeremiah is, he's delivered the message to uh, the king, but now he's going to jump over the head of the king and he's going, because he knows the king's not going to preach this to the population. So he jumps over the head of the king, and he goes right to the people, and he's going to declare the same message to them. This would have been considered treasonous uh, in that day, and maybe even today, because he's going to call on the people of Judah that God is against you. What you need to do is repent. There's no hope in fighting against Babylon at this point. The only hope is in you uh, surrendering uh, to them. And it would have been looked like he was undermining the military and the morale of, of the nation and so forth. And, and so he's at real risk at, uh, of doing, in, in doing this, of being viewed as unpatriotic against our military and so forth. And, uh, but he does it anyway because he's called as a prophet to speak to the entire uh, nation. And so he declares uh, to the people, behold, I've set before you the way of life and the way of death. The way of life was to surrender. The way of death was to continue in their idolatry and sin and rebellion. And he who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But, and that's an important word, he who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who besiege you, if you surrender uh, to the Babylonians, you shall live, and his life shall be for him, uh, shall be as a prize to him. For I have set my face against this city for adversity and not for good, says the Lord, and it shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. And so when he says this city is going to be burned with fire, uh, the idea is Nebuchadnezzar is not going to just come in here and conquer it and, and leave the city intact. 
he is going to reduce this city to rubble. That's how messy uh, all of this is going uh, to get. And Jeremiah uh, delivers this message. And concerning the house of the king of Judah, uh, the, Jeremiah is uh, now making a public call uh, to Zedekiah, uh, to his whole household, uh, to call on them to repent. He'd done it privately, and now he calls on them openly. Concerning the house of the king of Judah, say, hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus says the Lord, execute judgment in the morning. The king's responsibility under the law of Moses was to rule and to rule justly according to the law of Moses. And, and, and they weren't doing that. The king was showing uh, favoritism to the rich against the poor, and, 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 the, and it was just the judicial system was just uh, down the tubes. And so he's calling on the king, do what the law of Moses calls a king to do and execute judgment, that is, right judgment of the cases that are being brought to you in the morning. Always the court cases would come to the king in the morning in the Middle East uh, prior to the heat of the day, and then deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, and lest my fury go forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Don't be uh, giving favoritism to one group of people and then allowing the poor and, and so forth, the vulnerable, to be oppressed by people contrary uh, to the law of Moses. God always, from one end of the book to the other, He notices when uh, the common person, the hardworking person, the righteous person is being taken advantage of by those in power, and it really, really displeases him. He said, Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain, says the Lord. That was a, a description there uh, of, uh, of, uh, of Jerusalem. It, sat on, it sits on a kind of a flat plateau with three valleys on, with valleys on three sides of the city, uh, the Kidron Valley, the Valley of Hinnom, and it surrounds. So the city can only really be effectively invaded uh, from one particular direction. So it was an easy city to defend against attack, and they were uh, taking confidence in the fact that, you know, this is, we can, we can defend ourselves even against Babylon, given how strategically, uh, str the strategic kind of lay of the city itself. And, and Jeremiah speaks of their pride, who say, who can come down against us, or who shall enter into our dwellings? And the Lord responds, but I will punish you according to the fruit of your doing, says the Lord. I will kindle a fire in its forest, and it shall devour all things uh, around it. So when they, and again, they think, okay, we're on this plateau, we've got valleys on three sides, we only need to defend the one side. And again, in their thinking, they're up against Babylon. And God says, Babylon is the least of your problems. I am your problem. You are not going to defeat me on this. And, and so, uh, the, you know, the warning here, when he talks about uh, kindling a fire in the forest, you remember that uh, Solomon, when he built uh, after David had gone, uh, had died, and uh, before he built the temple and all, he built these great government buildings, these uh, uh, political centers or government centers within Jerusalem, and he brought in all of the timber out of Lebanon and so forth. And, and there's a description in the Old Testament about how 
you know, tall these timbers were, and, and the walk-in was just to see literally like a forest in front of you in terms of the wood. And of course, the cedar from Lebanon was the most desirable wood in the ancient world for that kind of, uh, of building. And when God says, I'm going to uh, burn this forest, and He speaks of it later as a forest in Lebanon, He talks about, He's basically saying, all of these buildings that you think are so amazing and, and so permanent, they're going, to burn like, uh, they're going to burn like a forest fire when Nebuchadnezzar comes uh, in and, and conquers, uh, conquers the, the city. Uh, chapter 22, thus says the Lord, go down to the house uh, of the king of Judah, speaking about uh, Zedekiah, a prophecy uh, against Zedekiah. In chapter 22, we uh, it deals with the last four kings of Judah before uh, they were taken into captivity, and it, but it doesn't deal with them in chronological order. In the first section of chapter 22, God speaks against Zedekiah. He was the final uh, king of, of Judah before when Babylon conquered Judah for a third time and kind of uh, finally uh, the historical order was Zedekiah and then a, a king by the name of Jehoiahaz and then Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin Chin, and then Zedekiah. You almost need a program to keep up with all of this, but that's, that's who they were. They were all sons of a very, very godly king in the Old Testament named Josiah. And so these are the, the sons that followed King uh, Josiah, and none of them are doing anything remotely like what their father did, and so God is going to rebuke uh, each one of them. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah, at that time it was Zedekiah, and there speak this word, and say, hear the word of the Lord. O king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, uh, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates, thus says the Lord, execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, and the idea is powerless people in, in the land, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. So one of the most frustrating things that can happen within any nation is for the judicial system to become corrupt. And where it favors the wealthy, it favors the powerful, and, and, and it isn't, uh, uh, justice isn't blind. Uh, and it should be blind. And justice is blind with God. When two people come into a courtroom and there's a case, it doesn't matter to God who has what or what position or their title or anything. What is right and wrong according to my law related to this situation? And I don't care how this person can line your pockets. If you rule in his favor, you do what's right. But Judah wasn't doing that anymore. And, uh, and it's tough if you get into the legal system and you get into a situation that is weighted in, in the wrong direction or showing favoritism one way or the other, and, uh, and you get bit by that, and that's what was uh, represented the whole uh, system of law in Judah at that time. It was utterly corrupt. For if you indeed do this thing, uh, Zedekiah, I'm not asking you to be a prophet. I'm not asking you to be a priest. I'm just asking you to be the king you're supposed to be. 
supposed to be. If you indeed do this thing, then shall enter the gates uh, of this house, speaking of his palace in, Jer- in Jerusalem. They'll come in riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. If you will just do right, if you will just judge righteously, then you won't be overthrown And then the kings that will follow you of the lineage of David, all of this can continue uh, to prosper. And But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, God says, uh, that this house will become a desolation. Now today we have if you see different demonstrations that are going on uh, in our culture sometimes where people feel like uh, injustice has been done, one of the chants is no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace, and the chant gets going and everything. Uh, God was the first one to declare no justice, no peace, and He declares it here to Zedekiah. If you do not deal with this population justly, then you will not uh, have peace. There is someone who is over you as a king, and I know how to get uh, your attention. The sad thing about all of this is that the, the father of all of these kings was Josiah, an utterly righteous king, an incredible man. And the kingdom, uh, the, uh, 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 Judah prospered so greatly under his reign, but he never resorted to corruption. He did what was right in the eyes of God, and the whole nation prospered as a result. And so there's no need to go to this kind of corruption uh, to continue to have the nation prosper. And they'd already, he had already seen it uh, in terms of, uh, of his, uh, his, his father and all of that, but he rejected the example. And for thus, uh, for thus says the Lord uh, to the house of the king of Judah, you are Gilead to me, uh, the head of Lebanon, and yet I will surely make you a wilderness, cities which are not inhabited. Uh, Gilead and Lebanon in those days was the site of uh, the most significant forests. Again, the cedar was uh, coveted by the entire, that part of the world. And so God says, uh, this is what you know, you are to me. This is, you know, that God valued them. He loved them and all, and yet I'm going to make you into a wilderness, the cities which are not inhabited. I will prepare destroyers against you, everyone with his weapons. They shall cut down your choice cedars and shall cast them into the fire. So the imagery that Zedekiah, when he's listening to this, he's in that palace where they've got, it looks like a forest, you know, the home of the king, the government buildings built with all of this magnificent wood. God is saying that basically when these armies come in, they're going to just be like uh, lumberjacks coming into a forest, and they just start hacking away and cutting these trees down. When Babylon comes into your palace, and they, and they will come into your palace, they're going to chop this thing down uh, like nothing. And then not only will they cut down your choice cedars, but they will build the, burn, uh, the, the buildings as well. And many nations will pass by this city, and everyone will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord done uh, so to this great city? And then they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshiped other gods and served them. This is very significant. When you and I as Christians, we We've been given a great commission that we are to take the gospel 
and the message of salvation into the entire world. We are a people who go where people go and to tell them about the good news of salvation, the forgiveness of sins. Um, I've been to Israel, and I remember one time having a conversation with a rabbi there, and he says, you guys have a, you have a, a great commission. Uh, as Jews, we don't have a great commission. And he was faulty in his thinking in this way, in that God placed the Jewish people. Remember, he gave them their land. And the land of Israel, if you look on a, a world map, it sits at the intersection of three of the great continents of the world, of Asia, of Africa, and of Europe. And all traffic between those continents, everything went through Israel. The reason God did not give Israel a great commission and send them out is God, uh, in placing them strategically, put them in a place where the whole world would come to them. And so when they would be on their travels, they would come into Israel, they would see the prosperity of the land, they would see the righteousness of the people, they would look at how beautiful life was in that land and say, who's the God around here? I mean, nobody's got a place like this. Who is your God? We're willing to trade in our gods and begin to follow Him. And that was what was intended to happen. But they had so violated their... Uh, everything in terms of being a witness of God, that God says, all right, now I'm going to overthrow you. I'm going to judge you so that now when these same generations, these same Gentiles from all of these three continents now make their way through the land, they, instead of being able to come to me, God says, based upon how I have blessed you, you have forced me to speak to them of my existence and of my power and my holiness by virtue of the fact that I have judged you. But God was going to be a witness to his existence to the world one way or another. And then de uh, God declares in a prophecy to uh, Jehoiahaz, who was one of the sons of Josiah, the first one to follow Josiah in his reign. And he declares concerning uh, King Jehoiahaz, weep not for the dead, uh, nor bemoan him. In other words, God speaks to Judah and says, stop uh, grieving the death of Josiah. Weep bitterly instead for him who goes away, that is King Jehoiahaz, for he shall return no more, nor see his uh, native uh, country. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, again, this is just another name for uh, Jeho Jehoiahaz here, uh, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father, who went from this place, he shall not return here anymore, but he shall die in the place where they have led him captive, and he shall see this land no more. Jehoiahaz uh, ultimately ended up being taken into captivity and into bondage into Egypt. Uh, because of political doings that were going on at that time, he goes into Egypt, and he ends up dying there exactly as uh, Jeremiah prophesied would be the, uh, the case. And then uh, a woe upon the next king, Jehoiakim, verse 13, woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice. 
who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him uh, nothing for his work, who says, I will build myself a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it uh, with vermilion. And so here is a, a King uh, Jehoiakim. He comes into reign. The, kind of the circumstances of his reign is that Judah was at that time kind of a v- vassal state of Egypt. They were already paying uh, high tribute to Egypt. So life was very hard for the working poor, for the, for the middle class. It was hard for everyone to make a living. This guy decides in the middle of all of this that he wants to build a big building for himself, and he hires laborers, probably the finest craftsmen in order to do that, and he has them build it, and then he doesn't pay them. And God sees this, and it really upsets God. I don't know how people live with themselves that could do that. How is a person going to eat? How are they going to, uh, you know, feed their family and so forth? But this is the hardness of the heart of the king. And the Lord essentially speaks to him and says, the security of Judah and your security as a king is not found in building another big building to yourself. It is in judging and ruling righteously like your father did, and then you wouldn't be in the problem uh, that you're in. So a call for him uh, to return to righteousness. And therefore, thus says the Lord, uh, verse uh, 18, concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him at his death. Nobody's going to say, alas, my brother, or alas, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, alas, master, or alas, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of a donkey. Do you know how they buried donkeys in those days? They didn't. They dragged them outside of the city, and they just left them in a heap. So they just rot in the sun. And that's what was going to happen uh, to his body, dragged out and cast beyond the gates of Jerusalem. And go up to Lebanon and cry out and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry out to Abarim and to all of, for all of your lovers are destroyed. God calls on uh, the king and Judah itself. Go to all of these nations that you're aligning yourself with, uh, Lebanon, Bashan, thinking that united together that you can win against uh, Babylon. Babylon is not your problem. I am your problem. And watch them get defeated by Babylon before Babylon even gets to you. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. And thus, this has been your manner uh, from your youth that you did not obey my voice. The wind shall eat up all of your rulers, and your lovers shall go into captivity, speaking of their allies, and surely then you will be ashamed and humiliated for all of your wickedness. O inhabitant of Lebanon, making your nest in the cedars, again uh, talking about the governmental centers and the forest of Lebanon that uh, those government buildings were uh, called. Uh, How gracious will you be when pangs come upon you like the pain of a woman in labor. And then uh, God's final prophecy of warning uh, is to uh, the king uh, Coniah or Jeconiah. And he says, as I live, says the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, though he were a signet 
on my right hand, I would, uh, yet I would pluck you off. When a king had a, a signet uh, ring, it was, it, it, as a king of Israel, it, spoke, it was to speak of his intimacy with God, the closeness of his relationship with God, and that he ruled as a representative of God. And a signet ring would be used to, you know, put it in the wax seal and so forth, that this edict came from the king. And so the Lord looks and and says concerning uh, Jeconiah, uh, listen, you've become so corrupt and, uh, and so contrary to what I call a king uh, to be that when Babylon comes, I will just take you off like a signet ring and I will just turn it over. I would rather have Judah in the hands of a pagan king uh, who doesn't know me and doesn't know any better to be what he is than to have it be in the hands of someone like you. I mean, this, these are strong words. And if he had had a soft heart, it would have smitten him and he would have humbled himself, but he didn't do that. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the land of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of uh, the Chaldeans. And so I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you, uh, where you were not born, and there you shall die. You are going to be taken captive, and you will never see this land again. Now, of course, everybody, all of the children of Judah, when they go into Babylonian captivity, a hard time to think about, wow, do we miss Israel. I mean, that would really weigh heavily upon you. And uh, boy, I wish we had another chance and so forth. But uh, it, the weight of that would have been considerable upon a king. I am going to die as one of the last kings of Judah in the land of Babylon because of the decisions that I uh, made uh, to the land, uh, but to the land which they desire to return, uh, there they will not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O oh, earth, 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 uh, hear the word of the Lord. Now, this is uh, interesting that happens here. The Lord calls the earth, the creation, to be a witness to his prophecies against this king. Why would he do that? Nobody else was paying attention. Nobody cared about what God was prophesying. Now, here is, these are God's people, but nobody's listening. And so God says, nobody's going to listen to me in Judah. Nobody's going to be a witness to the truth of these prophecies and then the fulfillment of them ultimately when they do come to pass. And so I will make a witness of the earth. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who does not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore uh, in Judah. Now, Jeconiah had multiple sons, so he's spoken of his childness, not in the, in the sense that he did not have sons. God is speaking of the fact that not one of his sons would ever sit upon the throne, and that was his responsibility to the kings. He's the one that uh, brought that end upon his family. And so we stop there tonight in chapter 23, and we'll look to pick up chapter, or 22, and pick up chapter 3 
uh, next time. Let's stand together and we'll pray in closing. Father, I just, I, pray, I just pray for myself tonight. I pray for us that you would always keep us broken, that you would always keep us soft in our relationship with you, even in the seasons of prosperity when we are most prone to wander and get spoiled spiritually and allow uh, idolatry and wickedness into our lives. We pray, Lord, as we see the terrible price that your people paid to harden their heart to you and to cease to be in awe of you and to cease to allow your word and your voice to impact them. Lord, keep us tender to your voice, always willing to hear what your word says and what your spirit would speak to us individually and then to act upon that uh, quickly, Lord, in, in whatever it is that you have to say to us. We recognize that when you speak to us that you're not just say, talking to be talking, that there's a reason for everything that you say. We bless you tonight, and we thank you that you are a speaking God. You are a God of revelation, and we ask that you would continue to do that in each of our lives. We thank you for this very intimate glimpse that you've given us into Jeremiah's life and this mountaintop of faith and then the praise and the worship and then an utter uh, collapse, Lord, to the deepest depths and yet in all of the ups and downs that he went through, you held firmly onto him and you worked all of it together for good. You developed a character within his life and a perseverance that he would have never otherwise known and that he finished his ministry. And Lord, we embrace that message tonight and that model in our own lives tonight. I pray for every man or woman that stands here before you this evening that is in that cycle, Lord. They're all the way down. They just don't see how they're going to make it. They curse the day that they were born. They wish they had never been born despite all of the joys of, of their life that they've experienced. And I pray and we pray that you would make this a great encouragement to them uh, tonight, that they're going to be, make it and that you're in the middle of doing something uh, profoundly good within their lives. And we pray, too, that you would take this little section of Scripture there with Jeremiah and that you would put it as a future reference point in each of our hearts and our ministry for when this season visits us or revisits us, Lord. Thank you for being the safe place we can always pour our heart out to. Thank you for being the one, Lord, who will always listen and who is bigger than every problem that we have. We bless you tonight for the greatness of your wisdom and of your power and of your love in our lives. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Samuel, would you close us?